Well, look, around here in Clerkenwell and around at Old Street, which is um, just to my east, uh, to your east as well, um, as you go towards Old Street and City Road, there's just been a lot of building going on over the last five years. So particularly if you look down City Road, there's a huge number of high-rises which have been springing up. Um, it was labelled by the Evening Standard a few years ago, Mini Manhattan, which of course is a blow to the Londoners' pride, right, that we'd be mini anything. I mean, I just want to mention the fact that according to the Morai Memorial Foundation and their Urban Strategies Department, we actually overtook New York last year as the globally most influential city, I'm just saying. So therefore, maybe not mini Manhattan, but either way. Um, there's just been a lot of building going on. And when those high-rises go up, before the high-rises themselves start to appear, you know, you can always go along and you can go into one of the marketing suites for the upcoming building, whether it's the Atlas or the Lexicon. And then long before you see the actual building itself, you can see the architectural model to scale, um, showing you what the shape of that building is going to be like, its proportions, what it's going to look like, the model that the architects are following. Well, I mention this because in many ways, the Old Testament is an architectural model of the true building that comes up in the New Testament. That is Jesus Christ, the true temple, the one who embodies the architecture of God and the one through whom God is building his purposes here in this world. And so if you want to kind of understand the New Testament and you want to understand who Jesus is and what he's like, reading the Old Testament is essential because it gives you that foreshadowing or that kind of scale model that when you see it in Jesus Christ, you go, aha, now I understand what it was all about. And in this passage, we have that going on. In fact, in 1 Samuel, we have it going on supremely through the foreshadowing of three offices, um, prophet, priest, and king, three really important offices in the Old Testament that are supremely and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the true and greater prophet. Jesus Christ, the true and greater priest. And this week for us, Jesus Christ, the true and greater king. And so what I want to suggest to you is what's going on in this passage tells us really about Jesus and his kingship. Now, in this passage, um, we have Saul established as the king. If you look back just to verse 24 of last week in chapter 10, you can see that Saul was coronated. He was crowned last week. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. But look at verse 5 of our passage this week. Where is this king? Well, he's plowing. Just then Saul was returning from the fields. He's not seated on a throne. He's not in a royal palace. He's in a field, and he's behind a couple of cows. Hardly very royal, is it? And the reason is, is that Israel has not actually accepted him as their king. He might have been crowned, but he hasn't been established. He might have been proclaimed their king, but they haven't really accepted him as their king. But it all changes because at the end, look down to verse 14 of our passage. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. In other words, they accepted him fully and finally as their king. Now, so much of historical interest, but why is that important for us today? It's often said, Mark and I often say, that people like the idea to an extent of Jesus being their savior. Uh, the idea of Jesus being gracious, forgiving, merciful. Yeah, we like that. But Jesus being the ultimate king, uh, the one who has authority over us, that's a tough pill to swallow for us, particularly in West and, you know, as uh, individualism grips us today. 
You know, if Jesus is the true king, as he's proclaimed, is his kingship good? Why would I want him to be king over me? And why would I want anyone to rule over me, let alone Jesus Christ? Many of us say, actually, as Christians, that Jesus is our king. He's not just our savior, but he's our king. But actually, we know how much we struggle with the idea that he really is our king. And if you want to you know, do an examination on that, then I think audit your levels of anxiety at the moment. Because to the extent you get Jesus really as your king, he liberates you from anxiety because you know he's got it. He's in control. There's a kind of poignant irony to the name of the problem we're facing at the moment, coronavirus, because you probably know corona means crown. It's as though the virus is king and it's shaking the foundations. And you see this, this virus seems to be uprooting the established systems of authority, right? The governments of the world are struggling to know what to do with it. The wise of the world seem to not have sufficient insight to know exactly how to cope with it. It seems to be undermining the authorities that we look and often trust in. Certainly, surely it's undermining our own confidence in ourselves, which is why the panic buying has gripped so many people. And one of the questions is, is Jesus the true king that we can trust this situation to? Is the crown really on his head or is it on a virus's head? Well, in this passage, we see how it is that Jesus is the real king. He's the one, whatever we're facing, whether we're anxious about the coronavirus or something else going on in our lives, or whether we just haven't yet surrendered to him as our true king, he's the one who rightly sits on the throne. And this passage is here to persuade us that he is the true and better king we all needs. And it does it in two ways. First of all, it shows us our need for a king. And then secondly, it shows us the victory of the king. Let's look first of all at our need for the king. A passage starts with the camera lens, as it were, kind of zooming in on the northeastern part of Israel and this place called Jabesh Gilead. Look with me at chapter 11, verse 1. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. So what's going on is nature appalls a vacuum and there's an, a leadership vacuum in Israel. And so Nahash, who is a, a lesser foe in some extent we've not heard much about before, thinks that this is his opportunity. So he invades Israel, northeastern part, and he lays siege to this fortified city of Jabesh Gilead, presumably because he thinks no king is going to come to help you because Israel is a kingdom divided. It hasn't got a king, or at least it's got a king, but it's not treating Saul as their king. And as we do that, there's more here than meets the eye as we look at this, because Nahash is a name that means serpent. Now, on one level, you have to ask what his parents were doing when they called him the serpent. But of course, part of what's going on here is that whilst Nahash is a real historical person, this is not myth, this is history, he's also in the Bible story um, emblematic of the great enemy we all face. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says this, for our struggle, our battle, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Just as Nahash presented a foe that was too great to the people of Jabesh Gilead, so Scripture wants us to see that the enemy, the devil, and the forces he commands in the spiritual realms are far too great for any of us to cope with. We need a king. Now, I'm acutely aware of the context in which I'm saying that. I know we're in 21st century London, and you must be thinking, Pete, haven't you read? We're secularists now. We don't believe in the devil. Are you serious that you want me to be scared by someone with horns and a pointy tail who wears red tights? Well, no, I don't want you to be scared by a caricature. Of course. 
I mean, to caricature the devil and then say, I can't believe people believe in that is just sloppy thinking. But let me put it this way. Do I want you, or rather, does Scripture want you to believe in a real personal force of evil in this world that is opposing everything that is good and that is opposing everything that is God? Yes, I do want you to believe in that, as so does Scripture. And I put it to you that actually it's interesting that as the secularization hypothesis has kind of gripped us collectively, we struggle to account for real evil that happens in the world. You know, when our psychological descriptions are no longer adequate to actually account for why people do what they do, there is actually something more. There is actual objective evil. It's not just bad software programming going on in people. Or when something like the coronavirus hits and you think the world has got enough problems to deal with and the elderly and vulnerable have got enough problems to deal with and now this as well, what's going on in the world? How do you explain that? I mean, if you're a secularist, there is no such thing as evil. It just is and we should stop moaning about it. But you can't do that, right? It just doesn't make any sense existentially. You can't live that way. No, there's a real force of evil in the world. His name is the devil. And we will always find life difficult to fathom. We will always be naive if we don't reckon with him. And the point is, is that he is far too powerful for us to cope with on our own. But ironically, that is what the people of Jabesh Gilead try to do. Look at what they do. Verse 1, no crying out to God in prayer, which is what they should do. No even sending to the king that God has put over them or appeal to Samuel. They try to deal with it themselves. And what do they try to do? They try to make a peace treaty with the devil or a peace treaty with Nahash, the serpent here. And how does it play out for them? Verse 2, Nahash the Ammonite replied, yeah, I'll make a treaty with you, only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. I mean, we get this. This is in our literature. It's in our films. It's the idea. You try to make a deal with the devil, you always lose. It's the Faustian pact from Goethe's play Faust, where Faust foolishly tries to make a deal with the devil, and he ends up losing the woman he loves and losing the child that she bore him. He loses everything. You can't make a deal with the devil. You can't make a deal with evil. There is no peace treaty with evil in life. It wants to domineer. It wants to disgrace you. It wants to gouge out your eyes. I remember a guy I met with a number of years back, pastorally, so there's no chance you would know him, who was battling with alcoholism at the time. When I met with him, it became clear to me that he was an alcoholic, but he was a very well-functioning guy working in the city. I asked him about his alcoholism. He denied it. Um, after a few weeks, it became clear that he was an alcoholic, and I pressed him on it, and he eventually admitted it. But I remember what he said. He said, okay, I, I do drink too much, but... Um, it's not in control of me. I could give it up any time I want to. And actually, I'm just going through a really difficult season of my life at the moment. It's just helping me get through this season of my life. Do you hear the language? I'm not in control of it. Sorry, I'm in control of it. It's not in control of me. Actually, it's helping me, my addiction. It's helping me. It's not enslaving me. It's helping me. He was trying to make a deal with something that was wanting to master him. There's no peace treaty with an addiction. And many of us know this. We have behavioral patterns in our lives that we want to kick off, we want to kind of deal with. Um, you probably are you know, saying to other people, look, I'm not addicted to it. Yeah, sure, I've tried a few different things, and I've made a few landmarks myself, and I've failed those landmarks, but I wouldn't call myself addicted. It's just a difficult season in my life. And as you've given up the fight, 
So you've kind of convinced yourself that you can make a peace treaty with it. It's not that bad. It's not really harming me. It's okay. And then after a few months or maybe a year or so, you start to look at your life and you start to see the scars, the problems it's bearing in your life, and you realize that verse 2 has happened. It's tried to gouge your eyes out. You can't make a peace treaty with such things. I wonder if you realize that there are problems in your life which are beyond your ability to fix. You know, you might be a competent person. You might be well-educated or not educated at all. You might be thinking, I've got force of will, but you can't fix these things. There are problems in your life which are beyond you. You need a king. And you need a king not only to help you with the things out there, but you need a king to help you with the fact that you think you can fix the problems in your life because you can't. There are forces that will overwhelm you. And so, wonderfully and mercifully, in verse 3, because of the pride of Nahash, he lets the um, message go out. Give us seven days so that we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. And the message goes out because he thinks there'll be no king to come. And as that message of help us, we need rescue goes out, finally there's a possibility of some salvation. It's interesting in this passage that rescue comes up in verse 3, it comes up in verse 9, and it comes up in verse 13. We all need a rescuer. We all need salvation. And God should be our first port of call, not our last port of call. Well, as we've seen the need for a king, let's now look at how God provides the rescue we need with the victory of the king. I said in verse 5, we find Saul not on a throne, but behind a plowshare in a field. And so how is that situation going to change? Well, look at verse 6. When Saul heard their words, so heard about the situation in Jabesh Gilead, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. Notice where salvation starts. Saul hears the words, but it's God's initiative. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him. God is not slow to act. If you've never cried out to God to help you, then you won't know this. But test him in this. God is never slow to act. He's quick to save. He wants to help. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul to equip him for the rescue, for salvation. Now, as you read this, it should be bring up echoes of judges. In judges, whenever the Lord raised up a judge, he empowered them with the Spirit. Think of Othniel or think of Gideon um, you know, or think of Samson, the Spirit of God rushing upon him to empower him to bring about a great victory. But there are other um, echoes here in this passage which might concern us, particularly if you were with us when we were going through our Judges series a year ago. At the end of the book of Judges, it got really gruesome and really horrible. And in chapters 19 to 21, they are some of the lowest points of all of Scripture. And in chapters 19 to 21, there were lots of references that seemed to chime with these verses. For example, it was set in the same location. Jabesh Gilead and Gibeah were both involved in chapters 19 to 21. And in chapters 19 to 21, in chapter 19, this hideous incident happens with the Levite's concubine, where after she is horrendously sexually abused and she's left dead, he slices up her body into 12 pieces and sends it to the 12 corners of Israel. And so worryingly in this passage, you seem to have a bit of an echo of that, which leads some commentators to basically think that Saul here 
is not a particularly good and godly example put before us, but rather there are big echoes of judges and we should be worried. I actually don't think that's what's going on. I think the Saul here is actually acting, this is his high point. This is when he's bringing about salvation. Let me just try to show you a few things to try to persuade you of that's what's going on. First of all, notice the Saul acts after the Spirit of God comes upon him. So this seems to be initiated from God, not from the vanity of his heart. Notice what he does with the pair of oxen. He cuts them into pieces. Yes, that's gruesome, but actually that was a common um, thing that they did back then. It was a way of casting a treaty with someone, and Saul gives us the interpretation of them. This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Notice he characterizes it as Saul and Samuel, so it's not about his own ego. He's happy to align himself with Samuel. And normally, the point of cutting an animal in half in a treaty in the ancient world was to say, if you break the treaty, you will be cut in half. But Saul doesn't say you will be cut in half if you break this treaty. He says your oxen will be cut in half. In other words, he's actually being more gentle than the prevailing norm. Okay, so it's initiated by the Spirit of God. He invokes Samuel. He also says this is what will be done to the oxen. So he's after your livelihood, not your life. In other words, and finally, the Lord works through this to bring about salvation. So look down at the end. And when the people, you know, ask in verse 12, who is it that asks, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. Saul says, no one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. Notice he says it's a day of life, not death. So he shows restraint and he ascribes the victory to the Lord, not to himself. So there's a less ego in there than a lot of people think. So I think all told, Saul is acting well here in a godly way. But as he is doing so, of course, we also need to see that this is quite gruesome. Because here's the thing, when you engage evil in a battle, do you really think there's a casualty-less war? I mean, you know this. If some evil grips your life, there are casualties. We're seeing this right now. The difficulty we're all grappling with in coronavirus is what will the level of the victims be like? How many people will tragically die? How do we mitigate that? Because when something evil that is not what God wants, according to his good plans, though he's sovereign over all things, what's the casualty going to be like? And so Saul has to go to battle. And verse 8, when Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and those of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, we will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. In other words, the king goes into battle and he defeats God's enemies. And ultimately, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and the way that he will go into battle for us. He has gone into battle for us and he's defeated God's enemies. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends on him, just as the Spirit fills Saul here. And Jesus is immediately compelled to go out into the desert. He does not go on spiritual retreat. He goes on spiritual attack, because who does he fight in the desert? The devil. The desert is the place where he fights the devil, and he defeats the devil there. And then as he goes to the cross later on in his life, that's supremely where he defeats the devil, as it says in Colossians 2, verse 13. 
You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, Jesus defeats the devil at the cross. And just as it happens swiftly for Saul here, the battle is over so quickly. So the moment Jesus throws the first punch, it's all over. It's not cosmic dualism, a big battle between light and dark, good and evil, and who will win. Jesus is God. The devil is merely a fallen angel. He can't hold a candle to Jesus. It's all over straight away. But whilst it's all over quickly, it's not cheap. Do you notice how in that poignant phrase, Saul says in verse 13, no one will be put to death this day. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. In other words, he says, this is a day of life. This is a day of victory. But in order for it to be a day of life and victory for us, Jesus had to die. Uh, one of my favorite films is Gladiator. When Rebecca and I are going to have a romantic night in, I try to suggest Gladiator or Braveheart. It doesn't normally get through the keeper, but there we are. And you may know that in the original script of Gladiator, um, when Ridley Scott first saw the script, it was all as it is in the film now, apart from when it came to the end. Maximus and Commodus fought in the arena in front of all of Rome in a packed arena. Maximus defeats Commodus relatively easily, and it says Maximus's hand is raised aloft with the sword victorious, fades to end credits. And Ridley Scott said, no, 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 no. It's an epic script, but that's not an epic ending. Maximus has to die. Because he knew that it's only if Maximus dies for Rome that we know how much Maximus really loves Rome. That's an epic ending. My friends, that's the gospel. Jesus is the victor. He's defeated all evil. But he could only do it by giving himself up to death. Saul might have said, no one will be put to death this day, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. But Jesus said, I will be put to death this day because that is the only way I can rescue the true Israel, you and me. Jesus, the true and better Saul, who when the Spirit came upon him, didn't break up the bodies of a couple of oxen, but he said, let my body be broken so that salvation can be brought to Israel. Jesus sacrifices himself so that we can have the victory in him, because with evil, there's always a casualty. He said, let me be the casualty so that they can go free. In one of the oldest Christian writings we have, The Incarnation by Athanasius, he writes about this theme of Christ the victor, and sadly the theme of Christ being the victor has gone out of a lot of our thinking in the West, but we need to recapture it. He says this, Because death and corruption were gaining ever firmer hold on humanity, the human race is in a process of destruction. Man who was created in God's image was disappearing and the work of God was being undone. What then was God being God and being good? What was he to do? Would he let corruption and death have their way? In other words, with everything happening in the world, is God going to let it go to pot? Is he going to let evil win? Athanasius goes on to say no. God, taking a body like our own, surrendered his body to death instead of all, and Jesus offered it to the Father. This he did out of sheer love for us, so that in his death all might die, 
and the law of death would be totally abolished, so he would make death to disappear from the world as utterly as straw from the fire. You know what he's saying? If you trust in Jesus, death is gone. Fear is gone. Sin is dealt with. It's been conquered. Evil has been dealt with. It's all over by the final victory cry. If you trust in Jesus, he is the victor, and you need not fear anything. Or to put it as the song by the Wren Collective goes, he's our rescuer. He's our rescuer. We are free from sin forevermore. Oh, how sweet the sound. Oh, how grace abounds. We will praise the Lord, our rescuer. Hey. As I close, like I wonder where the areas of your life at that moment are where you're struggling to have Jesus king. Lots of people are really grappling, of course, with trusting Jesus with the coronavirus. I'm conscious of anxiety. It's not just a problem for people who aren't Christians. It's a problem for many of us who are Christians as well. It really comes down to, it's not too simplistic to say it's a question of who or what has the crown on in your life. If you're trying to wear the crown yourself, trying to deal with problems yourself, or if you think that the coronavirus has the ultimate word, of course you'll be anxious. But the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus if you will let him be your king. He's conquered all evil. This is not outside of his plan. It hasn't taken him off guard. So no matter how anxious you are, you can trust this to him. He knows what he's doing. He's dealt with all evil. It doesn't mean this will be simplistic. It doesn't mean we shouldn't wash our hands and be careful about social distancing and do what the government says, and it would be helpful to stop panic buying. All of those things are good. But underneath that all, are you doing that from a position of fear or faith? That's the question. Trust Jesus. He's the king. Perhaps for you, he's not actually king of your life. Maybe you're like the men and women of Jabesh Gilead. You're trying to make a peace treaty. You think you can manage it yourself. Please, I'd long to spare you from the realization that if you try to make a peace treaty with the problems in your life, you'll end up losing an eye or something like that. Realize that only Jesus can conquer evil. You can't do it. You're not strong enough. Give yourself to him. Trust him as king of your life. Maybe there's a particular area in your life where you won't let Jesus be king. You've been following him for a number of years. You've tried in a particular area. You feel, I can't talk to anyone about it, the shame. And so you keep trying to deal with it yourself. Please stop being a fool. You're probably bearing the scars from it. Talk to someone. Pray with someone about it. They won't be as shocked as you think. It's a church community of grace here. And ask God to be king in that area. And let's together work at it. He's your king. He loves you. He's been victorious for you. So we can trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the true king, the victorious king, and how we need him as king in our lives. Forgive us for all the ways in which we seek to do things in our own strength and we don't trust him. And forgive us maybe if this whole situation we're facing at the moment is actually exposing our lack of faith. At a time of fear, Lord, may we be a community marked out by faith and patient trust, holding out the good news that Jesus is the victorious king and that he's in control. May we know that and may others come to know that through us. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.